who among us doesn't enjoy a good mystery? And especially when solving it means that I get to bring out my competitive side, even if it's just me against the clock, I just can't wait to uncover all the secrets. So June's Journey is a game that is completely up my alley, and I think you'll love it too. In June's Journey, a hidden object mystery game, you play as June Parker, who's on a quest to solve her sister's murder and uncover her family's many secrets. Each chapter brings you deeper into the story, and it's set in the Roaring Twenties, so beyond uncovering clues, you get to experience the glitz and glamour of the time. June's Journey is definitely not a game I play mindlessly, which I love because I get genuinely invested and a lot of it is a race against time, so there's a little fun added pressure of trying to find the clues as quickly as you can in each scene. There are also tons of ways to customize the island that you're on, learn more about the characters, and then new chapters are added weekly, so you really can't run out of things to explore. So if you think you're up to solve this case, download June's Journey for free today on iOS or Android or play on PC through Facebook games. June needs your help, detective. Wander with us into a world of magic. Do you lack magic? Where old stories take on a new life and the world is teeming with possibilities. Well, for the last time, we're not kissing, Fritz. Join Jenny and Madeline in this fantastical audio drama as they journey into the stories you grew up with. Okay, Gown. Let's do this. And reinvent fairy tales with a feminist twist. Ready for your next adventure? Then we'll see you soon in the forest of feminist fairy tales. Welcome back to Stories to Keep You Up at Night. I'm Marco Palmieri, and with me is my fantastic co-host, Christina Teleska. I'm glad to be back, especially after that intriguing trip to Vegas. Oh, yeah. That was <laughs> that was the trip. Um, and, you know, not to give you whiplash, but we're going to go all the way to Paris in this episode. Yeah, well, we're going from fake Paris? We're going from fake Paris to real Paris, and it's, it's going to be—it's not going to be— as fun a trip, but it's going to be a very thought-provoking yeah. trip. I've been to both Vegas and Paris, both of them incredibly intoxicating, but in very different ways. Agreed. Yeah. Although this Paris in this story is a, is different than the kind of Paris, the City of Lights version of Paris. Yes. And and this trip, as I said, is, I'm, well, I'm just going to say it. It's a pretty bleak uh, trip we're about to go on. As a captive woman is allowed outside to explore the City of Lights over the course of a single week. But who are her captors, and why are they doing this? You're about to find out in Seven Days in Paris, written by Thoraya Dyer and narrated by Keeler Lee. They had her in a room, her wrists kissing under cable ties. I put my hand to the smoky glass. She was familiar. The frizzy hair. The way her stubby fingers tapered to tiny, nimble tips. Her huge stomach and gelatinous haunches strained the men's orange prison issue they'd given her to wear. Ebony lids kept trying to slide shut over bloodshot eyes. Let her out, I said and something like a current ran down my scalp to the back of my neck. It's working, the white woman behind me said, checking a handheld device. 
but I didn't care about that. Who is she? Let her out. She's Marwa, the man with the mustache said. He smiled, but his lips didn't move. Instead, it was a strange spreading and parting of salt and pepper bristle. And you're Marwa B. My face in the glass was the same as Marwa's. There was a word for that. When I said it, a shock ran down my scalp again. I'm a clone? You're not a clone. You look identical because we need the sensory net to be the same. But Marwa's natural DNA doesn't have acceleration capacity. The thing that matters is your brain is a facsimile of hers. Only, we've loosened your synapses. Can't make connections that are already made, after all. Now, go outside. Experience things. Paris awaits. Out of context, his gibberish meant nothing to me. I felt overwhelmed by colors and sounds, even in that muffled darkness. The white woman took my arm. We passed the door to Marwa's cell, and I stopped to touch the cold keyhole. But something was wrong. I stared at that hole, and for a moment, I couldn't be sure what belonged inside of it. Pencils? Wakefulness? Satiety? Light? All I knew was that I wanted it to open. This way, the white woman insisted. She led me through chilly, sun-washed streets. I saw little cars and long buses. I heard laughter and the sound of pigeons cooing in empty stone archways under the eyes of corroded angels. Everything I saw and heard I could identify. Little shocks went down my scalp each time. Darkness approached. I smelled chocolate and geranium petals from window boxes being broken underfoot. The white woman led me back to the police station. She put her handheld machine into a bigger machine. Nothing, the mustached man said irately. Tomorrow, send her out by herself. He popped a boiled sweet into his mouth and sucked on it sharply. Two. Thinking was easier. The world made more sense. They released me out onto the Rue Lafayette with coins in my hand. I studied a timetable and took the metro to Tuileries Station. Boys with their hoods up jumped over the turnstiles. I smelled cigarette smoke on cashmere jackets and the metallic-worn brake tang common to trains all over the world. All over the world? I could remember images from yesterday, but it was difficult to think of anything prior to seeing the girl behind the glass. There might have been a wrinkled hand turning the pages of a book, the warmth of a giant lap. Maybe there was a boy with a broad, flat nose and a keyboard smile but I'd have to see them to be sure. I'd have to see them to remember their names. Had the man with the mustache sent me out to recover a memory? Marwa's memory? Why hadn't his name come to me? Was he a stranger? Those thoughts were too difficult. I discarded them. I saw the river gleaming, and I remembered its name. Lassen. 
A man with a peaked cap and a rumbling bass voice sang a song about swallows on the riverbank. He had a second cap on the ground with a few coins in it. I dropped one of my coins into it. My feet wanted to keep walking. There was a way, somewhere close to here, that I had walked sometimes in secret, a place that nobody was supposed to know about. Cage them and their hearts stop, the man sang. I found that I knew the next line of the song. I opened my mouth wide and felt lightness in the pit of my stomach. You cannot keep them any more than a crocus keeps the dew. My voice was high and pure. I remembered singing in a peaceful place with tall windows of aquamarine and navy blue. The old man reached his gnarled hand out for mine. I gave it to him and he drew me closer so that we both stood behind the cap on the ground. His lips curved joyfully as he sang the next line. Do they mourn their fallen? I answered with the chorus. The clouds do not mourn their death as rain. To be free in the time that you have is more precious than gowns and thread of gold and Tyrian purple silk. A woman in a red trench coat dropped a handful of coins into the hat. A dozen other pedestrians followed suit. When the song was finished, the old man took some of the coins and came back with two tiny cups of strong coffee. I drank, but it was so bitter. I wrinkled up my face and gave the paper cup back to him. He laughed. He gave me an almond croissant in a paper bag. We ate and drank and sang together all the rest of the day. The white woman came to fetch me at sunset. Three. I'm telling you, the white woman hissed. She's defective. She didn't like the coffee. And I'm telling you, the mustached man replied. It's a one-off. Statistically insignificant. They're not the same down to the last molecule, but they're close enough. He offered me a boiled sweet, and I took it. It tasted of raspberry and cream. Two days wasted, the white woman said. I think you should take her to the airport today. Run her past some of the potential military targets. I saw swallows at Charles de Gaulle Airport, crisscrossing. Clear plastic tunnels conveyed travelers up and down. I heard jet engines and the foul language of baggage handlers. I saw flashing signs with lists of departure times and destinations an army base, a naval base, more airports, secret ones. There was a tree on an airstrip wired to a stake. The wire was cutting into the bark. I removed it. The ends had been trimmed close and twisted tightly with pliers. But my short fingers tapered to tiny nimble tips and I was able to untwist the wires. I stared at my fingers in the car on the way back to the police station. Acceleration was ubiquitous in agriculture, illegal in humans. Yet, they had made me. They'd loosened my synapses. Why? Four. A new woman appeared at the station. She had a tight gray bun on top of her head, 
and she had no name either. When she came into the mustached man's office, he jumped to his feet, the white woman beside him. Sit, the bun lady barked. They sat. I shifted, not sure what to do, but the bun lady ignored me. So, she's not talking, and yet you have not handed her to a higher authority. We have a complete dream sequence, the man answered quickly. Repeatedly elicited in response to the subliminal messages regarding the second target. She isn't talking, but she can't stop dreaming. Explain. Suppose Marwa B has experience X, which triggers brain pattern Y. We record pattern Y. When Marwa dreams and we see pattern Y, we then know she is experiencing X in the dream state. Marwa B carries audio and video recorders, so when the computer is through compiling, we can see into Marwa's dreams, in a manner of speaking. But? But we haven't got a great deal of overlap so far between Marwa B's experiences and Marwa's dreams. What have you got, exactly? The mustached man nervously checked the computer. A little girl in the Tuileries blowing dandelion clocks, a lady eating a hot-crossed bun, a busker striking a match. Bun Lady became livid. We have three days, she shouted, and you're telling me the bomb is hidden in a place with dandelions, buskers, and sticky confectionery? That could be anywhere in the world. Yes, ma'am. Can't you show her photographs of actual cities? That would invalidate the process. It only works when she experiences things directly. There isn't enough time to fly her to all the possible places, but most cities have things in common. We hope for a metaphorical pastiche. I'll turn you into a metaphorical pastiche if that second bomb goes off. Mustache man swallowed. We will do better. You could hardly do worse. Waste your time with the dream sequence if you wish. I'm taking the old-fashioned road. I want the contact list, communication records, family tree right down to every dead leaf and shriveled root. Ma'am, we don't even know her last name. Send her to the agency. They'll find out. But the treaty, the international observers. Millions of lives are at stake. Don't you understand? Now get your useless science experiment out of my sight. My brain felt like a hundred zippers being ripped apart and then zipped up again. I couldn't process all the things I had heard. Some of the words made no sense to me because I needed to see things they described in order to remember them. One thing jumped out at me. I was made to be a window in Marwa's head and yet I'd inherited no clear memories. Otherwise, I would already know what the bun lady and the mustached man were trying to find out. But then, maybe if I knew, I wouldn't want to tell them any more than Marwa did. If I did find it out, I would have no choice about telling the white woman or not telling, because something would happen in my brain and they would have it. They would see it. My thoughts were not mine. I tried to think what I should do, how I should escape, 
but I remembered how they had Marwa in that room with her hands tied so she couldn't get away. And I thought they would do that to me too if I tried to run. Maybe they would even know I was going to run before I knew it myself. The white woman took me to famous landmarks. I looked without saying anything. I saw a seashell white church. In front of the steps, there was a carousel with tinny music and angry gilded horses. I saw men in black robes outside the Palais du Justice. I smelled a hundred perfumes on the Champs-Élysées. There was an eternal flame. It would always burn, the engraving said. But people were not eternal. Not even the sun would burn forever. So what hope did that leaping sprite have? Do you know how much you have in common with some of your favorite celebrities, leaders, newsmakers? I'm Evelyn, the host of Reppin, where you'll meet notable people you think you know. You'll find out who they really are and what they represent. Listen to Reppin wherever you get your podcasts. Five. They found out her name, the white woman whispered, not to me. Did they find the bomb? They found her boyfriend, a student at the university. I suppose he's not talking either. No, he isn't. He's dead. Huh. Was it the agency? Did they, you know, did they torture him? No. The hand got to him first. Now Marwa is the only link we have. We don't have her, though, do we? And maybe they got her last name, but I bet they didn't get it from her. You saw the file. She's got an IQ of 165. We have the dream sequence. That's all we need. I pretended to be in a kind of daze, but I watched the mustached man put his identification badge in a drawer. He locked the drawer with a key. He dropped the key into his boiled sweet jar. The white woman took me to the dirtiest, darkest parts of the city. I smelled rotting garbage. I heard shouts and running footsteps. Once, a gunshot. I walked upstairs and downstairs. Then, we found a dead baby, wrapped in a sheet. The white woman had to call her friends before we could go any further. I cried. Maybe it was because I couldn't really remember anyone that Marwa loved. The baby could have been hers. It could have been mine. Maybe it was worse when someone died that you didn't know. At least if you knew them, you could remember them. The baby was like a priceless painting, burned before it could be revealed to anyone. At the station, I asked the white woman for a boiled sweet. She gave me one to keep me quiet while she worked. They matched another part of Marwa's dream. It was a pile of cardboard boxes blowing over in the wind. Six. The mustached man took me out on the sixth day. His eyes bulged and he barely said a word, just shoved me into restaurant rooms and empty clubs. I saw art deco lamps, mirrors, wine, and waiters in white aprons serving expensive non-accelerated meats. I heard jostling and cursing as stages were assembled 
and screeching as microphones were set up. Night fell, and we didn't go back to the station. After a while, the clubs were no longer empty. I saw breasts and vulvas. I smelled sweat and semen. I heard loud, thumping electronic music, car alarms, and barking dogs. In the early hours of the morning, I saw a man in an alley, wearing a baker's hat, unlocking the back door of his patisserie. His eyes widened when he saw me. The mustached man had a tight grip on my arm. I stumbled with exhaustion. Hey, are you all right? The baker called. Yes, I called back. But I wasn't. Seven. Is she Muslim? No, ma'am, the mustached man said. Not as far as we know. She was in a church choir. Her parents were non-practicing evangelical. Were? Snapped the bun lady. They died in the uranium safe disaster. That's the motive we've been looking at all along for the hand organization. But we can't be sure. Nobody claimed responsibility for the first bombing. The uranium safe initiative had six founding member states. One of them has been attacked already. There are five remaining countries. Tell me what new information you have. Two ducks and a baker's hat, ma'am. You are kidding me. No, ma'am. I think it's time for Marwa B to take another trip to the Twilleries. This time, dress her like a hot screw with a cheap direct nutrition scar. Put Lady Adelaide's mark on her palms and set her up for business on Muddy Brothers' turf. They'll kill her. Maybe. Maybe that's what Marwa's dream is about. They spoke as if I didn't exist, as if my own life or death meant nothing to me. I struggled not to react, to keep my face blank and my eyes distanced. Come on, Marwa B, the mustached man said irritably. He took me to another room and gave me chains and braided leather to wear. With black ink, he painted mermaids on my palms, and with white clay, he fashioned something small and bumpy on the back of my neck. He wrapped me in a long brown coat. We went to the gardens and sat on a bench. Do you have to do what she says? I asked. He looked startled. Yes, he said. And you have to do what I say or we'll switch you to manual control. It won't be realistic, but it'll be better than letting you run away. Manual control. So I wasn't like the accelerated cows and chickens. I had some robotic parts in me. Of course I did. The little shocks of connection. They traveled to the back of my head. I put my hand there and touched only skin. It was inside of me. I couldn't get it out. When darkness began to crawl across the sky, the mustached man took my brown coat away. It was cold. Stay here, he said, no matter what happens. I shivered, alone on the bench. I saw the wind in the trees, a black bag fluttering in a garbage bin, and an empty food container forgotten on the path. I closed my eyes, focusing on recreating that scene, that experience in my head. 
I could fool that robotic part. I was smarter than it. Eyes still clenched, I set my body adrift. It began crawling towards the garbage bin. In my head, I saw the wind in the trees, the black bag fluttering, the empty food container. I concentrated hard on feeling the wooden planks of the bench pressing into my bare thighs, my shivering folded arms against my hard nipples, as if I hadn't moved an inch. Not the graze of my knees or the feel of the plastic bin liner in my hands. By touch, I emptied the garbage out of the bag. It was big enough to fit over my head. My fingers stretched it, trying to tear a hole in it for my head. I would put it on and I would get out of the park. They didn't know what I was feeling, only what I saw and heard. By memory, I emblazoned the scene from the bench on the back of my eyelids. The wind in the trees, the fluttering bag, the empty food container. Who are you? A gruff male voice demanded. Somebody grabbed my wrists. My eyes snapped open. Three young men, with black knitted hats on their heads and beer bottles in their hands, stood in a triangle around me. The one who had grabbed me uncurled my stubby, tapering fingers, staring at the mermaid. It's one of Lady Adelaide's. Doesn't belong here. Let's break it. Smash it. Yes. I came to consciousness back in my cell. There was daylight in the tiny window. Daylight. My heart stretched towards it. I ached all over. One of my eyes was swollen shut. She's awake, the white woman said dispassionately. Good, the mustached man said. They damaged the unit. It was recording, but not broadcasting. We'll have to remove it for analysis. I tried not to scream when he touched the back of my battered head. Two unnoticed metal pins turned abruptly to ice skewers in my brain. He pulled them out, handed a blood-smeared electronic part to the white woman. We're supposed to observe her for 30 minutes after removal, she said. Bring her to the office. We can observe her while we're running the match. If we get the match, what do we do with her then? Nothing. She's only built to last a week. By sundown, she'll start autolysis. She'll be entirely broken down by the morning. If we don't get a match? We'll get the surgeon to put it back in and send her out again while we can. In the office, the white woman's computer zapped and bleeped. Pink spots lit up in her cheeks. A complete match, she said. All the pieces have come together. Call the others in, quickly. The mustached man began tapping buttons on his communicator. Police and others in different uniforms began crowding the room. Can I have a boiled sweet? I asked. It can wait, the white woman snapped. It can't really, the mustached man told her. She's accelerated, needs to keep eating. The white woman handed me the whole jar. Bun lady arrived, flanked by men in dark suits. Show me, she ordered. Projected onto the wall, a bright city flickered to life. 
Its skyline was made up of cardboard boxes, matchboxes, sweet jars, and upturned paper coffee cups. The sky itself was a stained glass window, aquamarine and navy blue. Fairies represented by ducks plied the city's waterways. There was a great statue at the entrance to the harbor. It was a boy in a black knitted hat. He held a bottle by its neck, raising it threateningly above his head. Fire flickered at the base of the bottle, an eternal flame. It's New York, the white woman breathed. The viewpoint shifted. It zoomed down into the streets, to a crossroads that was the icing on a hot crossed bun. There, a package like a wrapped boiled sweet sat at the base of a street lamp, which was actually one of the art deco lamps I had seen in a cafe. I want that spot cross-referenced with satellite pictures, Bun Lady said. Suddenly, explosively, the boiled sweet came unwrapped. The cardboard boxes fell apart. A mushroom cloud, a baker's white hat, filled the projection. Before the dream finished, I had the mustached man's identification badge out of his drawer and tucked up my sleeve. In the excitement and confusion, I wandered out of the office and down the corridor. I used the badge to get out of the restricted part of the police station. Then, I didn't know where to go. I was going to start dying when the sun went down. I had no money. I was nothing. An illegal application of a technology designed to give genetically modified crops an accelerated lifespan. A lifespan so brief they would not escape and cross-contaminate natural species. Well, I had escaped. I could have tried to find Marwa's mother and her faintly remembered warm, safe lap. But they said that Marwa's mother was dead. I could have gone to the newspapers and melted spectacularly in a variety of multimedia formats. I went to the banks of La Seine. The old man with the peaked cap and the rumbling voice waved his arms excitedly when he saw me. He smiled, like a fresh baguette breaking open. But instead of steam rising into the cold air, it was love rising from his heart. I took his hand, and together we sent our voices over the water. We sang about clouds and spires and buds on branches in the spring. So there's a recurring theme in science fiction novels, movies, television, about disposable people. Disposable sentient beings, really, you know, because there are movies about clones and whether or not they're property and, you know, how they can be exploited. You know, there's Westworld. Um, you know, yes. there are so many, so many stories out there in which one of the main themes is how certain characters who are obviously self-aware become dehumanized. Totally, totally. I think why they're so, and this is my own opinion, but why they're so prevalent and why they're so fascinating is because I think this idea of cloning or sentience or, I think it's a reflection of humanity and our our own fear about how important are are we in the grand scheme of things. Absolutely, you know, and you know, what what, what kills me about it is that it's even in, 
something as popular as Star Wars. And I, I realize this is going to be an unpopular opinion, but one of my biggest issues with the way the Star Wars universe is set up is how the droids, who are obviously self-aware, are you know treated as appliances. They're they're completely disposable. They they you know one of them one of them's destroyed. You just get a new one. You know, That's very true. no one's no one's heartbroken over the loss of uh, of a droid. Yeah, but the sh- machines get their revenge in Terminator, where the disposable beings in Terminator are actually the humans. That's true. That's true. And and they get us back. And an orphan black. You know, the clones, once they realize they're they're an attempt to uh, create patented uh, biotechnology, they rise up and kick kick some corporate ass. Whenever humanity tries to be God, this is what happens. Right. And, you know, to get back to Seven Days in Paris, they take the dehumanization theme even further. As Marwa B's function becomes clearer throughout the story— I mean, I couldn't help but think of her as the human equivalent of a bomb-sniffing dog. Yes. Yes. But even, they, you know, they try to reduce her to that, and yet her humanity ekes out even so. She knows she's dying. Yes. And what does she do? She goes and spends her last day or her last yeah. hours right. with the singer. And that, for me, was the perfect ending to this yeah. really sad story, you know? I mean, it it still gives her— that moment, yeah, which I really appreciate. That she doesn't try to change her her situation; she just deals with it as best she can. Right, well, awful. It is, <laughs> but it's beautiful. It's be- awful and beautiful. That's, Beautifully that's, written. Well, I wish we could keep this conversation going, but unfortunately, we're out of time. Christina, thanks so much for joining me today. My pleasure. We don't accept tips on stories to keep you up at night, but if you feel so inclined, we do accept five star reviews. So feel free to post one wherever you're listening to this podcast. And join us next time when we'll time travel back to 1968 to a dark and fateful day in the city of Memphis, Tennessee. Boy, we are getting around. Bon oui, gentle listeners, and pleasant nightmares. You're listening to Stories to Keep You Up at Night, created and produced by Realm, your portal to another world. Listen away. Wander with us into a world of magic. Do you lack magic? Ever since I was born, I could hear the spirits of the other world. Where old stories take on a new life. If you break even one of these conditions, the consequence is death. And the world is teeming with possibilities. It's midnight, girls! They're here! Get ready to change! For the last time, we're not kissing, Fritz! Join Jenny and Madeline in this fantastical audio drama as they journey into the stories you grew up with as you've never heard them before. You are no more than a demon! Okay, Gown. Let's do this. And reinvent fairy tales with a feminist twist. Ready for your next adventure? Then we'll see you soon in the forest of feminist fairy tales. Stories to Keep You Up at Night, episode 58, features Seven Days in Paris by Thoraya Dyer. It is produced by Marco Palmieri and Mary Asadolahi. Associate produced by Alexis Latshaw. And executive produced by Molly Barton, Julian Yap, and Marcy Wiseman. Hosted by Marco Palmieri and Christina Teleska. Performed by Kaylor Lee. Audio produced by Tidef Studios. Additional editing by Angela Yee. 
Original theme by Hashem Asadolahi, featuring drummer Andrew Niven and mixed by Max Kuttner. Cover art by Kindle Thomas. Find more shows like Stories to Keep You Up at Night by following Realm on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or at realm.fm.